Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence at cmlibrary.org. Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to the written words. In this episode, we visit with Christy Woodson Harvey, the New York Times bestselling author of Under the Southern Sky, a novel of love and unconventional family in which two childhood friends reconnect and slowly realize that family is always closer than you think. When journalist Amelia Buxton discovers a personal connection to the biggest story of her career, she reaches out to her childhood friend Parker with the news. She has discovered a cluster of embryos belonging to Greer, Parker's late wife. Lisa Wingate, number one New York Times bestselling author of Before We Were Yours, has this to say about the book. Sometimes the key to new love lies hidden in old friendships. And under the southern sky, Christy Woodson Harvey stirs up a warm-hearted mix of hometown charm and the sort of thoroughly modern problems that bring us back to the people who know us best and the places that remind us of who we really are. My name is Landis Wade, and I'm the host of this podcast. I'm a recovering trial lawyer turned author turned podcaster of books and stories, and I really appreciate you being here with us today. You can find out more about me at my author website, LandisWade.com, and I'd love to have you visit. For all things related to the podcast, check out CharlotteReadersPodcast.com. You can find a lot of great resources there. We have show notes of every episode with pictures of the authors, photographs of their book covers, links to their websites and social media, and more. And we have the community blog there. It's a collection of readerly and writerly content provided by writers in the community and authors who've been on the show. And you can sign up for the book report at our website, charlottereadspodcast.com. We send it out every two weeks. It's free. We don't spam you. That takes way too much time. We just keep you updated on what's going on with the podcast, provide a dose of inspiration, Provide some free content from time to time, some links and other fun stuff related to the uh, reading and writing world. We're a proud member of the Queen City Podcast Network and the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, a collection of author-hosted podcasts putting out uh, this kind of content to a worldwide audience. And you can find us pretty much anywhere you like to listen to your podcast. You can also check out our Patreon page. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot coms forward slash Charlotte Readers Podcast. This is a place where we provide exclusive content uh, for our supporters. For just a few dollars a month, we provide access to exclusive audio interviews between me and authors who have appeared on the show, where they share their wisdom about uh, writing and the business of writing. It's a great way to get a good education if you're a lifelong learner like I am. But enough with this prologue. Let's meet today's author. Christy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so thrilled to be here. Yeah, and congratulations on the book. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, now when I got the advanced reader's copy, it said Christy Woodson Harvey, a USA Today bestselling author, but then I looked on your Twitter account on April 29th, and this book was number eight uh, on the New York Times bestseller list. Right. So exciting. <laughs> it's my first one. I was so thrilled. <laughs> you're you're going to you're gonna have to go change all your bios now, right? And you know, I haven't done that. You would think that would be the first thing that I would have done because I was so excited, but evidently <laughs> I just wanted to know I had done it, maybe. <laughs> Yeah, and we're going we're gonna to talk more about how you did that uh, when we get over to Patreon and some more. But uh, first of all, a little bit about you. Um, you. You're actually, Christy, 
you're the kind of author that makes would-be authors jealous. I mean, you're, oh. young, you're, 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 you're young, you're successful, you write good books, uh, you're a USA Today bestselling author, uh, you've won awards, um, you've got, what, eight or nine books already, been published in Southern Living, uh, USA Today, uh, your books have been optioned for television and film. So I guess now that I've got you right here on Charlotte's podcast, tell us the secret, Christy. <laughs> um, I think it's work harder than everyone else. <laughs> um, don't sleep. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Um, I, sleep is very, very important. I'm teasing. Um, no, I mean, I've always been a very driven person, I think. But truly and honestly, I think the key to everything is the relationships that you build. 100%. I mean, I think, um, you know, I did not know anyone coming into this. I did not know any authors. I didn't know anyone in publishing. I didn't know any agents. I didn't know anyone that could help me in any way, shape or form. Um, and so, you know, a lot of times people say to me like, well, how did you do it? Or what was your secret in? Or, and I used to think too, that everyone that was doing this had some kind of like secret relationship. And, you know, I got my first agent just writing letters like everybody else. But I think along the way, you know, the people that you meet, like the reporters and the bookstagrammers and, you know, the editors and um, other authors, there's so many people along the way that have helped me just to learn that have helped me get my book, my books out in the world. And I really think it's those relationships that are kind of the key. This was not an overnight thing for me. I mean, it's definitely been you know, seven books, six years of really hard work. Yeah, I've heard several authors on the show say they were overnight successes. It just took 10 or 12 years to get there. Exactly. I know. Well, I, that's what, um, you know, I've had a friend say that. She's like, yes, it was an overnight success in a decade and 13 years, you know, whatever it was. But, um, and I do think there's that tendency, like once you've kind of hit where you are, I think people think you've always been there, if that makes sense. And um, that's, I don't think that's the case for very many people every now yeah. and then maybe. Yeah. And you didn't get your start, um, writing novels. You, you, you kind of got your start on social media and blogging and that kind of thing, right? I did actually. Yeah. And so, um, I went to journalism school. I, I always wanted to not always, but as a teenager, like in high school, wanted to be a journalist. And so I went to journalism school. I did a lot of journalistic writing and my mom and I actually started an interior design blog, um, gosh, 10, 11 years ago, 12 years ago. So for several years, we had that before I actually started writing novels. Yeah, And tell us the name, because I think it's kind of cool. Yeah, it's called Design Chic. Um, and do you want to know the real reason why it's called Design Chic, not Chic Design? Of, of course. <laughs> Because the domain for Chic Design was like $35,000 and we could buy the d the domain My Design Chic for like $9.99. An, <laughs> an entrepreneur from the beginning. That's great. Well, one of the things uh, we're going to talk about when we get over to Patreon listeners is uh, creativity with platform building. And, and Christy's been very creative in that regard. But uh, one of the things she told me she does, and we're going to delve into it more, but I just want to ask it here now uh, too, and that is... Uh, this other platform you use, uh, I, I don't know if I can say that word, design chic. Uh, anyway, you use examples from that side of your, you know, world uh, in your novels. Can you give an example of the kind of things you sort of brought into this book, Under the Southern Sky, from your experience with design chic? 
Yes, um, absolutely. Well, I think for the the largest part is, especially for this book in particular, I'm always thinking about you know the settings and the homes and the places like that are going to be in the story. Um, and a lot of times there'll be a house that we've talked about on the blog or you know toured on the blog that will inspire something in the story. And so um, you can actually go on Design Chic and see the houses that inspired the houses in this story, um, namely Dogwood, which is this kind of rambling family home that um, a lot of the characters in this story are trying to save. So it ends up almost being a character in and of itself. And that's definitely something that was inspired by the blog and something that I've done from the beginning. I always, you know, from um, from my very first book, Dear Carolina, I was always trying to think about, you know, how can I bring my design chic readers into my writing process? And um, actually, a few of my books have a protagonist that's an interior designer. So that was a good tie in. Um, <laughs> that always helps. But and I mean, it was great because it was something I knew, you know, it was something that I wrote about every day. So it's something that I could really easily put myself into. So I wrote a series with a protagonist who was an interior designer. But, <laughs> That's um, great. but I'm always looking for those ways to bring my design chic readers into my stories and vice versa. And before we dive into the book here, uh, just one more thing. Uh, you also host... Uh, with several other authors, this uh, podcast called Friends and Fiction. Mm -hmm. uh, how did that come together? And uh, you know, tell our listeners what you like to do on that podcast. Oh, um, we love it. So it came together, if I'm just being honest, it was sort of one of those wing and a prayer situations where um, I do it every Wednesday night with um, Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Patty Callahan Henry, and Mary Alice Monroe. And the impetus for it was we all had books coming out last April and May. And we were all freaking out because we all go on these big, long, you know, two-month book tours all around the country, tons of cities, tons of events. And, you know, that's how we sell books. That's how we get out there and promote. And we, you know, go on local television shows and, you know, do all the things that you do when you're on tour. And we were like, what in the world are we going to do? So we all got in a Zoom one night to uh, complain, basically, and say, ah, we're over. This is never going to happen now. Um, and I believe it was Mary Kay who said, you know what? We should go do this on Facebook. We should all, we should go live on all of our Facebook pages and just talk to our readers and just say, Hey, we miss you guys. You know, our new books are coming out, support your local independent bookstore, you know, all those things that we really wanted to remind people. And we didn't expect anyone to come. We truly did not. We were like, this is, you know, whatever, but we're going to try. Um, and I think the first night we had like a thousand people that joined us live and we were yeah. like, Oh my goodness. And then by the end of the weekend, um, I think we had like 22,000 views or something on that video. And um, we got had all these emails from people saying, we're so bored. We're stuck at home in this pandemic. And you made us laugh. Like, please, you know, keep doing this. And so we planned to do it for seven weeks. It's actually, it started as a Facebook Live web show on Wednesday nights at seven, which it still is. We still do our web show live on Wednesday nights at seven. But it has now um, about, I don't know, about 10 weeks in, we were like, okay, we can't continue to do all of this by ourselves. This is a lot. And so we got a tech person who has also taken us into a podcast. We also now, so our Wednesday night shows run on our podcast, but we also have an amazing librarian friend named Ron Block who has come along and helped us with our podcast. And so he, um, along with, you know, one of us and several guests will be also doing an additional podcast every Friday. So yeah. it's just been great. And I think, um, I don't know about you, but I think seeing people get back to work and get back to their normal schedules, we've actually seen the podcast really pick up. Whereas during the pandemic, we had, 
you know, just so many people watching us live on Wednesday nights, which we still do. But I think now that people are back to their their regular routines, they're they're really listening again. I have noticed that as things open up, the, the downloads seem to go up for Charlotte Reese podcast too. Maybe people are traveling, they're listening in the car, they're listening, you know, as they go to the workout gym and that kind of thing. That's great. Yeah. Well, that, that, that's a great example. And listeners, we're going to dive deeper into this topic. If you're interested in, you know, platform building for authors, uh, I'm going to pick Christy's uh, brain on that, uh, mm-hmm. on that channel. Uh, but you can see just listening how one thing can lead to another. So it's okay to start with an experiment try it out and it could lead to something else. All right, we're going to get to the book, Christy. Uh, but let's do this. Um, so we got an inciting incident here. And actually, we got two because the very first of the book, Amelia Saxton, who's one of the protagonists in the book, she finds her husband is having an affair, not with uh, the, the woman who lives next door, but who? With the man who is her hairdresser. <laughs> <laughs> so where did you come up with that? Um, lots of places. I mean, there were, there were several reasons. I mean, a lot of times I just don't know things just kind of pop into my head. I do have a couple of friends that has happened to, to be honest. Um, and I think it creates a much more complex situation. You know, I think when you're, when your husband cheats with a woman, it's, it's, it's a little more cut and dry. I think when you find your husband with another man, you have very complicated feelings about it as Amelia does, because one, she knows her marriage is over, but her marriage is over for a very different reason. And, and, and I think ultimately it really helps her. Um, she has to come to, to this through this journey of healing and processing the fact that this man that she loved, that she thought was going to be her forever was trying to be someone else for her Mm -hmm. and that he was never really going to be that person. And that that's not really his fault, but she can still be mad because he shouldn't have married, you know, so she has a lot of ups and downs. There's a lot of complexity to her feelings about her marriage. Um, So much so that I'm kind of like, gosh, I could really write a sequel to this book and like what happens with them next. Well, She is a strong character as I'm reading it starting off. She kind of brushes that aside and kind of moves on and and sounds like the kind of person who's busy enough to to kind of, and she's busy enough that she finds herself investigating the next thing she's investigating because she's a reporter, which puts her at this fertility clinic, which puts her in front of a a list that she's not supposed to be looking at, mm-hmm. which causes her to see something on that list that basically is sort of the what if for this entire novel. So tell us what she sees and how that then moves this uh, story forward. Yeah. And I will say you definitely hit on something about Amelia as a person. I mean, she's definitely the kind of person that she doesn't stop a lot to really process things. She just, she just moves forward and that catches up with her at some points during this yeah, book. Yeah, but, yeah. um, but she is very driven and, um, she does have an interview that she's been working for months to get scheduled. And so she goes ahead and she does it because what's her choice really at that point. Um, and she is investigating what couples do with their leftover frozen embryos. And she is, um, you know, doing an interview, like you said, and she finds this list on a doctor's desk um, that is a list of embryos that have been deemed abandoned. And that's a big thing in the news right now. It's basically, um, there's a big ethical question about what can be done with these embryos. You know, are they life? Do they belong to someone, even if they're not paying for them? Can they be adopted out like abandoned children? Like what, what do we do with them? It's, it's a big thing. Um, but Amelia knows their fate is up in the air. So she has to tell Parker, you know, that these embryos have been deemed abandoned and that, you know, it's up to him to make this decision about what to do with what is effectively the last remaining piece of this woman, Greer, who he had loved so very much. So just uh, um, 
play out the in the news uh, part of this a moment. Yeah, I'm a little bit familiar with this because of a family member that went through the whole process. Um, yeah. So essentially, they might get several fertilized eggs and they use those to uh, to, to give birth. But then there were several others that took, but they never use them. Is that the idea? And then they're and then they're left behind, so to speak. Exactly. And so they're left behind. And so normally what happens is um, it's a big thing now, like honestly, in the last probably six or seven years since I got the idea for this story, you know, until the time that I actually wrote it, people are thinking about this in a very different way. I mean, I have friends who are, you know, starting the process of IVF and they have wills drawn up for their embryos. They have clauses so that, you know, if they get divorced, um, you know, who gets the embryos or if they die, you know, their husband has to have their sister's permission to make the decision. I mean, this is a big thing right now. And something that I learned um, that I kind of knew, but that I have really learned through the process of researching this book is that um, people become very, very attached to these embryos. Um, And I think if you read this book and you see the character of Greer, she is very, very attached to these embryos. And I think that's extremely common for couples because they've been on this long journey, you know, to try to have this baby. And so to them, you know, they are their children. And I, you know, I've read stories. There was a story in the New York times the day before this book came out about a couple who, um, they found out 20 years later, they had two leftover embryos that had gotten lost in a freezer. And it was, she said the most devastating thing that had ever happened to her because all she wanted was another baby. And, you know, to the point that she would go in the hospital parking lot and sing lullabies to her embryos in the freezer. Like people are very connected to these embryos. So um, there's, there's a lot that goes into this. I think people think about it a lot more now, but even five and six years ago when this was just, um, I mean, it wasn't newer. This process has been around for a long time, but I think people now are really starting to think about, okay, we could have leftover embryos and what does that mean? And for some people, and I think that's why this was a hard topic to come into writing about, because for some people, it's just a couple of cells and it doesn't matter and get rid of them. But for some people, this is life. It's their children. So I think, you know, you're, you find people on very different sides of this argument. um, And it has really become something that people are talking a lot about. But most people, you know, you pay for the storage of these embryos. But what's happening now is there are hundreds of thousands of embryos that have been abandoned. So no one's paying for their storage. No one has any true legal claim to them. But so now the question in the court systems is, but do they have a biological claim to them? And if so, what is that? And what is the responsibility of these mm-hmm. doctor's offices that are, you know, cryogenic freezing is not cheap. So they're paying for all of this freezer space for these, you know, for this biological material that's essentially been abandoned. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, you wouldn't even think about some of these things yeah. uh, and probably uh, the, the parents that are doing this aren't really thinking long-term about it either. But anyway, I, I think uh, since you mentioned Greer, um, she is a character that we see in the book, but she's, uh, she's mostly dead throughout the book. Uh, she's, she's writing, she's, mostly dead. <laughs> she's writing, she's writing. Well, she, I, I listen, I listen all the way down. Yeah. I, I listened to y'all cut up about it on your podcast and you had one of your, uh, fellow podcasters come back uh, from the dead to do her yes, voice. Right? That was actually Ellen Pildebrand. She's not okay. actually one of our normal, uh, but she came back to play Greer. And the hilarious part is she was on St. John 
and the internet was out. And so she had this horrible right. reception and it really sounded like she had this like warbly voice yeah, and it yeah. really sounded like she was beyond yeah. break. And, was and, and one of your co-hosts said to you, now, now, Christy, don't be so judgy of the dead. They don't have very good Wi-Fi where they come <laughs> from, you know? So in, anyway, Greer is Parker's late wife. She's a woman we get to know through these journal entries. It's a good time now for us to uh, maybe hear her voice. We do this on Charlotte's podcast where authors give voice to the written words. Um, this is not the first time we hear from her in the book. Uh, it's a little bit further in, but uh, maybe you could just set this up. Tell us where we are in the book before you read it. Yes. So this is actually Greer's third journal entry that we see. And this pops up um, for Parker. He's actually the one who's reading this journal entry of Greer's. And it's when he's trying to make this very difficult decision about what he's going to do with these embryos. And this is a journal entry um, about something that he never knew happened while his wife was alive. So this is from May 16th, 2016. I asked to see them today. I was supposed to go to the oncologist office, but at this point, I didn't see a reason to. I was dying. It was as simple and as complicated as that. So instead, I drove to the fertility clinic. I walked through the double doors past the front desk with its sliding glass windows with several nurses protesting down a hall with modern art and low lighting and directly into Dr. Wright's office. If he was surprised to see me behind his imposing desk, a pair of giant computer monitors flanking his head, he didn't let on. I asked to see them and he was like, see what? My babies, obviously. How was it that only a few short months ago making these embryos felt help hopeful? It felt easy, like cancer would be a blip on my radar and in no time I would be back in action. Dr. Wright didn't argue with me, and in retrospect, I'm sure that walking me into his lab must have wrecked his schedule, that the rest of the day was filled with angry women. I wondered briefly what Parker would have thought of this, of me there, standing over a microscope, my tears blurring the eyepiece as I asked Dr. Wright to switch the slides. They were just a few cells, my babies, but each one already looked different. One was a ladybug with its wings out, another a beautiful flower about to bloom, a four-leaf clover, a teddy bear. They were actual real-life embryos, a part of Parker and a part of me. One would have grown up to like her hair and braided pigtails, the other in sparkly clips. One would have wanted a basketball party when he turned five, another a firefighter party. One would hate peas, one would love carrots, one would be a gifted pianist, another not able to carry a tune. They were unique and they were special and they were beautiful. They were gifts, but they would never be. I knew I was dying. I had made peace with that. But what I couldn't reconcile is that they would die with me. I can imagine rocking them to sleep as babies, holding their chubby hands as they stepped into the ocean for the first time as toddlers, fighting over math homework and curfews, Parker teaching them to drive, even sitting in the front pew at their weddings. I wouldn't get to do any of that, but, was, but what was so much worse, neither would they. Pain and sadness drenched every part of me, making it difficult to breathe. I wouldn't make a scene. I'd never do something like that. But this ache was so raw and so pure that I felt like I couldn't move. I couldn't walk away from them. When I did, my brief and painful attempt at motherhood, the one maternal thing I would ever do in my life would be gone. Dr. Wright put his hand on my shoulder and asked if I wanted him to call Parker. I sniffed and shook my head. I didn't want Parker to know about this. He shouldn't. He couldn't. He was going to have so much to deal with. I couldn't ask him to share this pain and this loss too. I hoped that he would never think about it again, although it hurt something deep and low and dark in my heart to think of my babies here in this freezer. My ladybug, flower, four-leaf clover, and teddy bear. My legacy, my family, all the life that nearly was. Yeah, that's a, that's a pretty powerful, uh, you know, journal entry to come across if you're the spouse of 
someone who's died. Um, and that sort of creates a, a real dilemma here for, uh, for, for Parker. He's grieving Greer's loss, but then he has to, uh, sort of think about, uh, you know, what he's going to do because she mentions her legacy, her family, all the life that, you know, nearly was. And so, um, you could have taken this in a lot of different directions at this point, right? Yeah. <laughs> do, do, do you write, do you, do you, did you have an idea as to where you're going to go with it? Or do you, are you one of those that sort of takes this idea and just runs with it? So I'm a take an idea and run with it kind of person. I don't really usually know where a story is going to go, but I had a brief idea of this one. Um, and actually, um, I laugh. I mean, I, my eighth and ninth novel are coming out this year and I've never written a novel proposal before. I've either written a whole book or like just had a, a relationship that was close enough with an editor that I called him on the phone and say, Hey, what do you think about this? You know? <laughs> um, and so I had done that. Hey, what do you think about this with my editor? Um, and, and I had pitched her an idea for what I thought was kind of going to happen in the story. And she loved it. And, um, then I started writing it and it just wasn't, I could tell it wasn't like I, I wrote it and then realized it was like, I was writing it. And as I was kind of coming to this really pivotal part in the story, I was like, Oh, that's not going to work. It's just not going to feel right. Um, and so I remember calling her and saying, this is going to be a different book than we thought we were going to get. And she was like, okay. Um, so, which I mean, you know, I, I tried, yeah, that always happens with me because I never really know what's going to happen. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I sort of knew what was going to happen in this story before I started. And I knew like where I saw Parker and where I saw Amelia and, um, you know, all of those things. So. But I did not know Elizabeth was going to be in this story. Elizabeth okay. is um, Amelia's mother. And I did not know she was going to be a point of view character. Yeah. And, and you do this, uh, you do first person point of views and places. And then uh, you've got uh, different characters at different times whose heads we get into. So let's talk about the setting. Uh, where these characters are living and breathing. And, you know, you're, you're, you call it, uh, let's see, what is it? Cape Carolina. Cape Carolina. Where, mm -hmm. where is that? <laughs> okay. So um, the impetus for Cape Carolina, the book that I wrote before this in 2020 called Feels Like Falling was originally set in Moorhead City, which is, you know, a real place. It's near Beaufort where I live. And um, I had just come off of writing my Peachtree Bluff series, which is based on Beaufort, but is obviously a fake town, which was so great because once you write a fake town, you realize like, oh, I don't have to worry about, do they turn into Dunkin' Donuts or the stoplight? <laughs> it doesn't matter because I'm making it up. So um, I had felt such a wonderful sense of freedom. And there were a few things when I came back to edit that book that I really wanted to change in terms of the setting and the way that things would be. And so I was like, well, I'm going to make up a town for this and just call it something a little bit different. And I had a really scientific process for the name. I was out to dinner with a group of friends and I was like, okay, guys, I'm going to make up a name for a town. What's it going to be? Go. And we all just like sat there for an hour and came up with things. And we decided on Cape Carolina, which I really like. Um, the other thing. And so when I was writing this story, um, it was kind of a crazy time. Hurricane Florence had just come through Beaufort and um, we live in a house that our house that we're in has been here since 1903, but there was actually a house before it that burned down. So people have been living on this lot in this space since like the mid 1700s, since, you know, before the revolution. So it's a very old spot, but um, Hurricane Florence had come through and just really wiped out our house. So we were living all over the place, but one of the houses that we rented was in Atlantic Beach, which is part of the setting of Cape Carolina from Feels Like Falling. Um, at the end of this road called Hoopole Creek. And it's this beautiful marshy area with, um, you know, just like lots of 
water running through it as well. So it's not like that stagnant marsh that you think of. It's, it's kind of a flowing uh, ecosystem and it's really, really beautiful. And I thought, oh, this would be such a beautiful place to set a story. So um, I put the house at the end of this peninsula, you know, in Cape Cod. I stuck it there. You just dropped it in. Just dropped it in there, um, dropped in this house I wanted to write about. And um, in this, in this peninsula, but then sort of the area and the surrounding town, if you've read feels like falling, you recognize like little bits and pieces of things that you've seen and feels like falling that then also pop up in under mm. the Southern sky. So tell us about the food and the drink, because, uh, that comes up in the book as well. We've got sweet tea. We've got a little bourbon. Uh, talk yeah. about what's on, t- talk about what's on the Sunday dinner table. I mean, what is Southern culture without good food and drinks, right? Now, it's funny that you say that because um, one of my friends that is not from the South, she said, you know, this is why she's lived in the South for a long, long time. And she actually called me and she said, this is why people always say to me, why don't you write about the South? And she said, because people that aren't from the South just can't write about the South and the way that people who are, and she's like, you know, they're just things that like the lemon squares at the church picnic and like the, you know, the lemonade on the lawn after church and like all those little things that when you're Southern, you grow up with. And people always say to me like, oh, you put all these things in your stories that make them Southern, but it's not on purpose. That's just what I know. I'm not like, oh, what would make this more Southern? Let's have them put bourbon in their sweet tea. Like I didn't think about that. People just do that, right? (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Particularly after church, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so let's talk about the book cover second uh, yeah. and, and the title. Um, okay. It's got a very beachy feel to it under the Southern sky. You've got, uh, you know, you're looking at a woman from her back. She's got the big straw hat on. There's a sailboat out on the, on the ocean there. Uh, looks like a perfect spot to have one of those sweet teas and bourbons Bourbon. we just talked about, you know? Uh, so are you, are you trying for that sort of beach read feel here with the, with these book covers? Yeah. I mean, you know, that's always a big conversation. Um, this, this cover, we actually originally were thinking about going in a little bit of a different direction, but, um, you know, my, my last few books had been very successful and they sort of thought, why reinvent the wheel? These covers are working. This is what people like. This is a slightly, um, it's a slightly heavier book than my last few, but it's still, you know, you're still going to get your happy ending. You're still going to get your good beach read. Um, and I actually, um, this was one of the covers that they sent me for the third book in my Peach Tree Bluff series, which was called The Southern Side of Paradise. And it wasn't the right cover for that book, but I really liked the cover and it was something that I saved. <laughs> so um, when we were looking at covers, none of them, it just, it just nothing was like quite right. And so I actually pulled this one out of the archives and they redid it and they put the woman on the porch and they put the sailboat in and, um, you know, recolored the sky and like did a lot of changes to it. But, um, no, I think it's a great cover for the book and it really encapsulates that feel of someone said to me, she looks lonely. And I was like, well, she is. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> she or, is. <laughs> or you could say she looks happy sitting there. You never know. Well, yeah. I know. But most people are like, wow, like that looks amazing. That's where I want to be right now. Exactly. Um, exactly. But yeah, I think you kind of get the feel of Cape Carolina from it. So before we ask a few writing life questions, um, I want to talk about the antagonist in this book because it, it, I always think about that when I'm reading as well. But in this one, I mean, you've got tension between people that are trying to come together to work things out in the family. And there's always tension and conflict in the family. But I'm wondering if the antagonist is more, um, you know, maybe this grief, this moral dilemma that they're dealing with. Who do you see or what do you see as the antagonist in this particular book? 
Hmm, that's a really good question. And I do think it is more of a what than a who. I mean, there's no one particular person that's like, you know, standing in the way or anything like that. But both of these characters do have a lot of scars from, you know, their past relationships from, um, you know, one of the things that we haven't really talked about that Amelia is really carrying in this story that I think um, helps really dictate and define her journey is that she finds out when she's a young teenager that she can never have biological children. And so that's a huge um, defining point in her life. And she makes this decision as a 14 year old that she's not going to become a mother because she's not supposed to be. And then, you know, in her thirties, she's still kind of living out this thing that she decided when she was 14 years old and she's never really taken a step back and thought, but is this still really what I want? And so in that way, you know, I think her marriage blowing up is actually the best thing that ever happened to her because it gives her a minute to think like, was I in this marriage for the right reasons? Or was I in it because like this man sort of wanted what I wanted? You know, is this, is this what I really want out of my life? And, and, and what am I going to do? So I think that's definitely one of her antagonists. And then for Parker, you know, it's his grief. I mean, he's stuck in it. He cannot move forward. And um, in a way, you know, these embryos are the thing that really shake his life up and give him some sort of hope, even though, you know, it's a double-edged sword because Parker is not a man who has grown up in a world where you can be a single father, honey. Like that's not, you know, he's from this very traditional Southern family where his father has never changed a diaper or probably held a baby. So, you know, this is not um, something that people in his world can really understand. So it definitely, there are a lot of big decisions happening here. Now, now, Christy, being a, a a woman who's a mother who's living in the South, are you sermonizing here about men who uh, live in the South? <laughs> I am not. I have the greatest husband in the entire world. No, I used to say all the time because when we got married, I was like, I'm gonna, I want to have babies and stay home with them and like be this, you know. And then our son was two when I got my first book deal, and it was all of a sudden like, oh wait, I'm going to be touring. And what are we going to do? No, he's the greatest. He okay. is the great. My dad yeah. has a really, I mean, was super, super hands-on too. He like did lots with me and took care of me. But, you know, there is that stereotype of, you know, yeah. that Southern man that's, you know, I don't know. I can't imagine that my grandfather ever changed a diaper. I'll say that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's true. Well, uh, listeners, lots of good themes in this book. Uh, surrogate motherhood, uh, infertility, grief, loss, death of a spouse, but the, but the, it's it's character-driven. So, And this is going to come out in July as you're listening, so a good time to pick up a beach read. I, I want to do a few writing life questions, Christy. We do this okay. on the show as well. Um, and the first one that comes to mind for me, for, for an author like you, uh, has to do with the word balance. Um, mm. How do you balance uh, your writing with all these other things that you're doing? So I had finally gotten... It, I'm not going to say gotten it down, but I had really gotten on a schedule where, you know, I was writing a book a year. I had these very distinct segments of time in my day and my life and then COVID. And then, you know, we were homeschooling. I wasn't on tour. I decided I was going to write two books in a year. I mean, just, it was like, I took everything that was like really perfectly level and balanced and like just shook it up. So, but I think that every now and then you have to do that to yourself because it makes you realize like, oh, this is really what I want to do. Or it's kind of like the characters in these books, you know, in, the, in all of my books, you know, something happens and throws a wrench in their plan and it makes them um, kind of redefine what they want to do with their life. So um, it's definitely, 
it's definitely interesting. Um, it's going to be interesting to see, you know, touring for two books this year. That's the major thing that is always the most difficult because when I'm at home, you know, I can be mom and I can write in the mornings and I can get my, you know, other things done in the afternoons and, you know, I can do all those things. But when I'm gone, you know, things are a little bit trickier. And, um, but I did learn during the pandemic that, you know, I don't, I think I did 89 speaking engagements in 2019. And like, I don't really need to do 89 speaking engagements a year. You know, we learned that, you know, we can come on podcasts and do some virtual events and stay home a little more. So that was a big lesson for me. But um, I really have kind of given up on, you know, the perfect balance of everything. Everything Mm -hmm. sort of ebbs and flows. And I feel like as long as, you know, as a whole, everyone's happy and everything's getting done, then we're doing okay. That's great. And, and now that you're, you know, this uh, Instagrammer on steroids, you're blogging, you got design chic, you're writing books, you're a New York Times bestseller. I uh, asked this question to authors uh, throughout their stages of writing. And that is, yeah. if you could tell your younger writing self something of value that uh, had she known it when she got into this gig, uh, can you boil it down to something? I think maybe just don't be in such a hurry. And I still need to tell myself that nothing has changed. I'm always in a hurry. I'm always, you know, what's the next thing? What are we going to do next? What's next? Um, But I think there's something really joyous, even though you cannot imagine it when you're doing it. But there is something about writing when no one's going to read it and you are absolutely not on a deadline. That is this sort of joy that you will never have again. I don't want to go back to it, but there is something about that time when you're developing yourself as a writer and you're developing your craft and you're finding your voice completely alone when no one else is judging what you're doing and no one else has an opinion about it that I think really helps to form who you are as a writer. Mm, yeah, that's good. Uh, it strikes me um, spending time with you today that uh, you're one of these kind of people that when a new idea comes along or one you have when you're walking that you want to do it, even though you don't have any time to do it. I do. <laughs> you're so right. That's me in a nutshell. Jack, you got it, Landis. Yeah. And I'm kind of that way. I'm thinking about all the things I want to do. And I think, well, I want to add this. I want to add that. And I'm like, where are you going to add this? You know, where's where that going to come in? You know, when you do all these other things. Um, all right. So uh, we mentioned the pandemic and just sort of wrap things up here. I haven't asked an author this yet, but I'll ask you, um, there are things for you that came out of the pandemic because you're a creator, you came up with ideas. And I'm just wondering uh, what your perspective is now going forward on some of the things you learned that you could do that you never tried doing that are also now going to be a compliment to the things you do as an author. Completely. Well, definitely the trying to be home a little bit more. I mean, I'm definitely, if I can write a little bit more and tour a little bit less, I think what I'm producing is going to be better. Um, Friends and fiction is absolutely the greatest gift just because, you know, I think we have this community now that's like almost 50,000 members strong of people who are just so passionate about reading and books and life and whatever. And it's just been such an outlet to be able to go there and find these really like-minded people and see that and to just have that true camaraderie with these other authors which, you know, we'd always been friends, but, you know, we talk a thousand times a day now. Um, So that's been a little bit different. And I think um, for all of us, I think, you know, I have always been a person who has really believed in supporting other people. I have been supported. We're coming full circle because this is sort of where we started. But um, 
I have been so supported by people and I've always tried to be really supportive of others um, where I can be. And I think that's something that we really learned during this pandemic too, is that when we all help each other and we collaborate, it's not taking away from anything. It's just making us stronger. And so um, that's been a really big lesson. Yeah. And it's been the same way on the podcast. I enjoy helping authors, you know, get the word out about their books. And uh, during the pandemic, uh, it seemed like it was really hard for authors to travel and get out and that kind of thing. So, you know, spent a lot of time talking to over 100 authors last year and had a, had a great experience. Uh, well, listeners, we're going to... Um, we're going to jump over to Patreon. Don't forget to go check out the show notes at charlotteerspodcast.com. You can find out more about Christy. There are links to her website, uh, to her Twitter, to her Instagram, other places. Uh, you can find her on Design Chic as well if you're interested in some home improvement ideas. Um, but we're going to go talk now about uh, you know how to uh, be creative in that uh, platform building. So, uh, hey, Christy, thanks so much for spending time with us on Charlotte Rears Podcast. Oh, thank you, Landis. Thanks for having me, and thanks for all your doing for books and authors. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. You can subscribe to this podcast for free at Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and most any podcast platform you like to listen to your podcast on. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice, because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com.